Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Very often when I'm speaking with investment property owners in New York City, they bring up the lead paint laws and they ask me, Bill, what do you know about that? Well, <laughs> I find them as confusing as they do. And so I thought it would be a great time to invite the experts on the lead paint laws to share their knowledge and expertise with me and most importantly, you, the Realty Speak audience. Today on Realty Speak, I am excited to welcome Carrie Munez and Lee Wasserman of Lou Environmental Services. Lee is the CEO and president of the company, which he founded in 1991. Lee has performed inspections, conducted risk management assessments, conducted industry training, and completed all types of remediation. He is a three-time recipient of the New Jersey Apartment Association President's Award, and he was also awarded the New York City prestigious ABO Emma Lazarus Award. And as if that wasn't enough, he's an acknowledged contributor to the 2012 HUD guidelines for lead paint. Carrie is the business development manager and New York division manager at Lou, and she is a specialist in the areas of lead health hazards, property environmental compliance, risk management, and federal and state regulations. Carrie is very boots on the ground in New York City, where the lead laws and the recent changes in the laws can be very confusing, and I'm sure she will clear that up today. Thank you both for being here the first day of fall, September 22nd, 2022, for me and the Realty Speak audience. Thank you for having us. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to be here as well. My first question is, why lead? In 1991, at 23 years old, after getting my accounting degree, I wanted to be self-employed. I had a family uncle who unfortunately has since passed. He was a leading nationally recognized toxicologist. And he had shared with me uh, that he gets calls from all over the country of from physicians and docs and talks of children of lead poisoning. And there really wasn't at that time an infrastructure or anybody could deal with it. So I took my uh, accounting knowledge and went and did a lot of research and realized that there was a very large populace of properties painted with lead paint throughout the United States. And uh, as far as a business opportunity, it made a lot of sense. So in 1992, I incorporated Lou. And 30 years later, here we are. We operate in about 35 different states. The core of our business and our customer base are institutional landlords and property developers. And certainly right now, our focus is to help you know as many owners manage the very uh, burdensome and plethora of New York City lead-based paint laws. Thanks, Lee. And I'm sure the listeners are ready to get into the meat of this, so let's get started. When considering lead paint laws in New York City, there are several local laws, and I think they're Local Law 1, Local Law 31, Local Law 39, and Local Law 40. Is that all of them? And if not, or even if it is, why are there so many laws for one situation? And I understand that this is at the federal level as well. That is a very good question, Bill. There's now 20 plus local lead laws in New York City alone, not including federal laws that are both HUD and EPA, but focusing on the New York City local laws, 
Yes, we have local law one that goes back to 2004. There were some amendments, but what we really saw was in 2019 and 2020, a whole bunch of uh, council new past amendments and new local laws that went from local laws 63 to 73 of 19, 27 to 31 of 2020. And even most recently now, uh, you know, we've got new local laws of 2021, including 39 and 40. How do you keep track of all this? And now I'm even more confused. <laughs> and and not to interrupt you, because I'm sure you're going to get into all of this, but what law does a person in New York have to comply with? The federal law? The state law? The local city law? The simple answer is there are no current state laws in New York State. New York State has defaulted back to EPA. So in theory, Bill, if you had, and I have many clients, Carrie and I have many clients that have this, they have affordable housing in New York City because they receive some form of federal subsidy, HUD, or through NYCHA, or through HBD, they have a federal law in the HUD's Let's Safe Housing Rule obligation, 24 CFR Part 35. They then would have the EPA federal laws of disclosure as well as making sure their staff or their trades are certified in EPA's renovation, repair, and painting rule, or let's say work practice trained individuals. And then you've got just a ton, uh, 2022 or whatever it is, local laws for lead in New York City. So your question was, I think, how does a landlord manage this? And I'm... (laughs) I almost want to chuckle because I'm doing it 30 years. I do it in multiple states, federal level, state level, municipal level, and I will share it is getting really complicated. And I think in many ways, it's gotten so complicated for the owners that that's one of the biggest hurdles is what are all the moving parts? It's, there is no clear or clean you know, step connect the dots, but obviously the laws do give the detail. And if one puts all the pieces together, certainly they can figure it out. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what we do. We kind of help them figure it out. And you mentioned HPD. So that's Housing Preservation and Development. And that's a city agency. That's correct. Right. Because you said there was no state law. So I guess HPD is the enforcement entity in New York City for the lead paint laws. Well, you also have DOH, Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, depending on you know, what triggers the lead concern? Is it a housing violation or is it a lead poison child violation? And I, depending on what triggers the issue would dictate who would have the authority. So, uh, Carrie, give me some examples of like what a trigger would be, right? So I guess if, if, if there's lead poisoning of a child, uh, that, that's a trigger. What are some of the other triggers in terms of the physical building? With the children, it seems to be the most popular one. Um, When children go, especially two-year-olds go for their checkup, parents discover that there's an EBL. The doctor then informs the state of the situation. And then DOH is informed. And that's when the investigation starts taking place. And what's involved in the investigation? So basically, um, an inspector is sent out based on the plan. An inspection is done. And then a violation is, is given. And then that's when we come in, we receive a copy of the violation and we start working together with the homeowner on figuring out what the areas are that need to be corrected. 
What if the child didn't get lead poisoning from the current occupancy? That's when we come in and we do our own inspection, or sometimes we base our findings and we've come, I've come across cases where the child has not acquired the lead from the home they're currently at, but has had the lead in their blood from a previous location. How do you determine that that's actually fact? Yeah, I was going to say, we're talking about a child with an elevated blood lead level. And as you know, we're going to talk about some of these newer local law, uh, new requirements, which really do focus right in on that Department of Health environmental blood lead level investigation. And it's not just, you know, people think just a child, but the way that the rule and the new requirements go into effect, it's anyone under 18 years of age. It covers a big group of young people in the city, obviously, but what triggers an inspection and a lot of different things. It could be simple as a resident, you know, making a uh, New York City complaint. It could be um, New York City as part of some of those uh, local law changes is required to do 200 annual property audits a year, looking at their records. And as we're seeing, we do get a lot of calls from our clients and property owners who have received a records production violation order. So there are a lot of, you know, some cases may be the kid or the child who has an elevated blood level doesn't even live in your property, but somewhere along the way with DOH or somewhere they documented that the child may spend time in a unit in your building, cousin, aunt, you know, uh, who knows? So there's a lot of, lot of little things that could trigger various forms of investigations. And then it's, is it a poison child that the city is going to do the initial investigation? Or is it not in the hands of a violation of the city and a client? Another, you know, requirement for the inspection is obviously one of the big local law changes that is requiring all property owners in New York City uh, pre-1960, as I'm sure yourself and many of the listeners are probably aware because it's been out there for about two and a half years, by August 8th of 2025, all pre-1960 New York City units need to have a lead inspection. And then at this newer definition that only New York City has of a lower threshold of what's considered lead paint. So we're seeing a lot of activity on the inspection side because of that requirement as well. So it's not a violation, but it is a mandate of one of the changes in the local laws. And just to add to that, with the children, the law seems is very specific when it comes to children. Any The child does not need to be in the home all the time. The child, If the child spends at least 10 hours a week in the home, then that home falls under the category of five and under that needs to be inspected. And that deadline it is over by now that deadline to have those apartments inspected was August 9th of 2021. August 9th of 2021. What, what the law required, Bill, is they defined the term reside. They changed what, you know, historically it was, does a child live in your unit? And after multiple revisions, they've changed the definition to reside. Reside is 10 hours or more in a given week. So you could be watching in the grandkids, you know, two days a week or one long day when mom and dad are working. And technically now that child by New York City definition resides, which then would basically, you know, obligate to comply with the lead laws within that unit. So that's so I'm going to kind of review this a little so I make sure I understand it and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. So child is defined as someone under under 18. Yes. And then if an owner 
realizes that they have that situation, then technically they should have had a lead inspection by what month in, August, in 2021? What Kerry was referring was if you had a child, the original inspection requirement law gave you five years per, per unit, to five years to get those inspections done in all of your units, unless there was a child under the age of six. So if there was a child under the age of six, you had 12 months from either the effective date of the law of August of 2021, or going forward, you have 12 months from the day that child under six moves into the unit. So for clarity, there's kind of two, two moving parts of child. Historically, we consider a child to be under six and under some of the new Department of Health requirements for lead poison children or lead poison investigations, they use 18. Oh, I see. Okay. So for the inspection, it's under six, but for an investigation, because someone has lead poisoning, it's 18? That is correct. Ah. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, let's say someone owns a, a, and this is everything. This is like a one family home and everything, right? If it's a rental property. It's if it's a rental state. property. Okay. And it's so, pre 1960 construction in New York City in the fire. Right. So if someone lives in a uh, one family home and they have their family there and their family age ranges from, you know, two years old to 13 years old and they got four kids, but they occupy it solely as the owner occupant, it's not a rental property, then they're exempt from the lead laws? They are exempt from the lead laws with the exception of if one of those children was to ever be identified as lead poisoned, then the New York City Department of Health would come out and do an investigation regardless. Person privately owned home or rental property doesn't matter to a lead poison child investigation. But it matters to who needs to get an inspection proactively without an investigation of lead poisoning. A hundred percent. If it's an owner occupied property, it is exempt. Now, someone lives in a two family home and they live on the first floor and they rent out the upstairs, then they are required to get an inspection based on these other deadlines that we talked about, right? In that upstairs rental unit, assuming it's pre-1960 construction, you are correct. Yep. Regardless of whether you're an owner occupant or not, if you want something before 1960, it's probably a good idea to proactively have an inspection done just to be on the safe side. Bill, historically, a lot of people didn't want to know because if they knew, they felt they had to disclose it and deal with it. In my professional opinion, uh, after doing this for 30 years, I don't think a property owner can really afford not to know. There's a lot of benefits to knowing, do I or don't I have lead-based paint in my unit or in my property? Short of knowing, it's very, very challenging to manage something. You know, Think about all the painted surfaces and all the apartments. How do you manage it effectively if you have no idea where the lead may or may not be? And by default and by regulation, you have to presume it all is when most likely it is not all covered with lead paint. Very, very, very rarely do we see that. We'll go into remediation later on and we'll also talk about the lead content and how that's changed, that it's a lower threshold of lead 0.5 milligram per centimeter square. Correct. And we'll go into that a little bit later. But I guess I want to ask, let's say someone has an inspection done and they see that they have lead paint and they take care of that. Let's call it remediation, whatever it 
whatever it ha- whatever it takes to remediate that. I'm sure there are a lot of different methods for doing that, and we'll discuss that later. Can they then be exempt moving forward as a quote unquote clean building? Without question, the answer is yes. A little clarity: there are two different types of certifications: a lead-based paint free on a unit basis or a lead-based paint safe. And HPD and the regulations have outlined relatively clearly on when something falls into which bucket. And the buckets are dependent upon what was the treatment that the property owner used. So for instance, if you want to go for a lead-based paint free, you have to get rid of all your lead-based painted components. So if you remove the trim, let's say, and put brand new trim in, you can go for a lead-based paint free, presuming the trim was the only thing that was found to be positive. If you don't want to remove the trim, uh, and maybe trim is not the best example, but a positive wall, and you want to use an encapsulant, a liquid elastomeric type of product that goes over a lot of surfaces, there are some pre and post follow-up responsibilities but that would not get you a lead-based paint-free exemption. It, it would get you a lead-safe. And the reasoning is, is the lead paint is still somewhere there, encapsulated, entombed, locked down, and unaccessible. So a lead-based paint-free exemption would enable you to not have to deal with this anymore as if you had a house built in you know 1995 and there was no lead-based paint being used in that construction at that point. That would be the magic golden ticket. That's what everyone should hopefully strive for if they can achieve it. If you can't achieve that and you get a lead-based safe certification, what are the requirements going forward for you? You still have an ongoing monitoring responsibility to make sure that those treatments are stay intact and maintain You know that lead hazards don't resurrect themselves or show their face again. So there's an ongoing monitoring responsibility with documentation in in order to maintain that certification. All right. So there are two deadlines here. Uh, The first one we kind of clarified, which is there's somebody under six that was already living there and you had 12 months from the time that that particular aspect of the law became effective to get the inspection done or someone moved in after the law became effective, who was under six, and you have 12 months from when the person moved in. What's the other deadline? That deadline is August 2025. All landlords who have rental properties that were built pre-1960s have to have those units inspected. So that means that they don't have anyone under six and no one's moved in under six. So they get a little extra time because no one's under six years old and they have until August of 2025 to get that rental unit inspected. That is correct. Is there any other compliance threshold that we want to talk about? I would like to, Bill, just add a little bit to what Carrie was sharing. The expectation is that on turnover, they test the units. If you have already had the unit inspected prior at the 1.0, the prior uh, definition of lead-based paint, In theory, you have met your obligation until turnover. However, one of the concerns that we are seeing is based on the total population of apartment units in New York City that meet this pre-1960 timeframe, 
and based on the expected volume, it seems like a lot of the units that should have been tested, if you did it over even five years, have not been. And we are beginning to have a concern of this big bottleneck and everyone's going to come to the, oh my gosh, I got two years left dance floor and it's going to make it challenging to meet all those inspections. In essence, it was supposed to be a rolling. I don't want people just to think it goes to August. They're supposed to do it on the turnover. If you had it inspected at the 1.0, you're good for the moment. On turnover, you got to go for the 0.5, you know, inspect it at the 0.5. So it, it may be a process for some units at the moment versus all of their units, if that makes any sense. All right. So last month I had, and wh when did it change from 1.0 to 0.5? Back in December of 2021. 2021. All right. So uh, in July, I have a rental building and it has eight units and they're all occupied. And nobody there is under six years old. And I'm thinking I have until August of 2025 to have these units inspected. And then somebody moves out of the fourth floor unit in the front. And now I have to do it now. I don't have until August 2025. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, good. And and then if somebody moves and and it doesn't matter now how old the person is because I got to do it, right? They uh, somebody can on be the on the turnover. On the turnover, right? So the turnover prevails. Correct. The turnover prevails. All right. So you you did touch a little bit on uh, compliance and how s some people have, some people haven't. They're confused about the laws. If if somebody is uncertain about whether or not they are in compliance, what would they do? They could go to HPD and DOH's website and begin to start reading. And on HPD's website, there is a good drop-down section entitled, you know, owner's responsibilities. But that alone doesn't kind of cover everything. One of the things and why Loop Environmental exists is because that's the consulting service to help owners, you know, with identifying number one, are we just obligated on this property to comply with New York City's properties, uh, regulations and lead laws? Or do we also have to take into consideration HUDs or EPAs or other jurisdictions? It can get very complicated. Are there any statistics on the ratio of people in compliance to people not in compliance? And I guess that's maybe a little hard to track, right? Because it's like a moving it's a it's a big moving part, right? You have people moving in and out of apartments. You have people that are six years old. You got people that are not six, you know, under six years old. But is there is there some kind of statistic in terms of how many buildings are in or out of compliance? I am not aware of it. I'm sure HPD or DOH has some data to support what they find based on their audits. I do know that historically. Pre all these changes, there was enough data to support the city council that a substantial population of property owners were not complying with making friction and impact surfaces clean and smooth uh, on turnovers. And I think that, you know, that data exists. And that was a pretty substantial number. And the turnover again uh, was as of December of 2021. As of December, the definition of lead based paint changed. And in light of that change, it required upon turnover to have your unit inspected. And if you previously had it inspected at the 1.0, 
you would lose any exemptions you might have had because you'd have to inspect at the 0.5. Wow. Yeah, it's been a very challenging year for the property owners, or last two years. Yeah, and I think we're clearing a lot of that up. I don't know that anybody's going to be any less confused about their specific situation. Obviously, they're going to have to do more research, but I think we're giving a really good framework of what to look for and what to pay attention to. What about lead poisoning? I mean, what's the statistics on that? Are there statistics on the number of children 18 or younger that have lead poisoning? There are absolutely statistics. Department of Health has them. They're tracking it all the time. I am sure somewhere in the DOH website or in the public domain, that information is published. I did recently thought I saw something that said roughly 4,000 children were identified as poisoned in New York City, uh, I want to say in 2020. But I have not seen any more recent data points. Now, what happens if you don't comply? Uh, you said there's an audit, right? So if someone doesn't audit you, then they don't know you're not in compliance? Well, not necessarily. It could be a resident complaint who calls up the city and says, I'm concerned about the flaking, peeling pain, or I'm concerned about I don't have hot water. City comes out for a hot water inspection, and part of the requirements are while they're out there looking at hot water, they should be looking at other conditions, pests, rodents, pain condition. Could be a situation where another federal agency flags something and refers it to the city agency. We've seen that. There are definitely different reasons, and I guess the question is what happens is... Yeah. What is the consequences of not being in compliance? Depending on what type of non-compliance with you know these 2022 different local law changes, they each have their own little different violation enforcement action. And without going through each and every scenario, and they, they change to some extent, Bill, but hopefully now with some of these new amendments and local laws going into play, we'll hopefully get some period of stability. But simple violations could be $250 per day, up to like a max maximum of 10000 other violations, you know, have $1,000 or $1,500 per day. Some cases, you know, the city can just send in the remediation crew, correct the violation, and then backcharge an owner. And as much as nobody likes violations from city or towns and states, depending on the circumstances, if God forbid a child does have an elevated blood level, well, then it always creates the nasty, you know, potential for a litigation scenario, which nobody wants. I say in my world of risk management, of course, we don't want violations. That's the objective. But I'd, I'd avoid lawsuits before I avoid a $1,500 violation. Can you challenge the violation? You can certainly try to challenge them. My experience is there's been very little success with challenging the violations in New York, but there's obviously you know the various court processes to go through. There used to be a presumed paint violation. And certainly they did give or provide, the city did provide for a contestation type of you know scenario where we could potentially chip the sample or send it to a lab and determine whether or not via lab and then contest it. But for the most part, you know, my experience is you certainly can, you know, fight City Hall, but as you can appreciate, you're fighting City Hall. Someone calls you up and asks you to do an inspection. What are the different things that can happen? Bill, there's a couple different scenarios of what we might find in the inspection. So the first thing we want to try and do is we want to understand a particular building and we do something called a look-see. A look-see is a very limited inspection, three units, but it's the bare bones statistical number of units to say, 
I have no lead-based paint, most likely. I tested three units. We found nothing. I go into three units. I find lead, but it's in the same location in all three units, so I have a consistent pattern. Or we get into three units and we find lead-based paint totally random, potentially all over the place. Based on those findings, we work with our clients to try and help them decide, okay, is this an A candidate or A bucket property where we believe there's no lead-based paint? Let's go for the exemption. Let's test the appropriate number of units. And we get you a lead-based paint-free. You're done forever. Then we get that next bucket where we went through the three units. We found some lead, not a ton. It's in the same location or a consistent pattern. Expectation would be if we were to test more units, we would see a similar pattern. And this is a property where we put, and I would call it a B bucket, where the expectation after discussion with the client about what's it going to take to exempt out these units. Maybe it's a couple pieces of trim and you know, over the next five years on turnovers, they all get pulled out. So that property, we you know do a little bit of a different type of proposal and testing process. And then there's the final bucket, I'll call it the bucket C, where we went into the three units, we found lead in each of the three units, we found it in different locations. The expectation is that in the balance of the property's units, there's going to be random lead, could be substantial, cost-wise, time-wise, we're not going to go for the exemption. It doesn't make sense. So in that property, we're going to work with the client or the ownership to help them manage the lead issues in place and comply with the requirements of the law. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And now, with that in mind, I'd like to highlight a past episode that is very valuable to you, especially if you are thinking of selling your investment real estate. When you sell, you will most likely have a capital gain, and unless you properly plan in advance, you could trigger a federal, state, and local tax on that gain that will significantly impact the taxes you owe on the profit from the sale. The episode is number 45 that came out in August 2022, and it's titled Protect Your Hard-Earned Capital Gains, Count the Ways. It reviews the capital gain strategies from older episodes 5, 18, and 37, and highlights a more recently developed strategy, adding yet another option to defer capital gains. I added a link to number 45 in the show notes of this episode, so it'll be easy for you to find. You can also just Google Realty Speak Count the Ways, and it'll be the first in your search results. My mission? Be the best real estate advisor, consultant, and broker I can be while helping you sell, purchase, and finance investment real estate. I'm just a phone call away, 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Solutions in real estate, it's in my DNA. And now back to the show. Carrie, do you have a story of an actual building that was inspected that fits into one of those buckets? Absolutely. Um, I have a client out of New York, um, believed she was let free, had to, had done some work to the building. How big was the building? Uh, 72 units. Wow. Big building. Big building. We went in and we did, we conducted a HUD random in which, um, according to the HUD guidelines, 
according to the year the building was built and according to the number of units, HUD's guidelines will give us a number of random units for us to inspect. We went into those units. Client was very convinced that they were lead free. We discovered lead in every single apartment that we inspected. So we immediately informed them of what the situation we encountered and advised them that we needed to go ahead and move forward with inspecting all 72 units because an exemption for them was not possible. And that would fall into the bucket C that Lee was talking about. That is correct. Was lead in all the units? There was lead in all the units in specific areas. It was on the baseboards, some um, window sills, but it seemed to be a pattern in the same areas. We provided the full reports. We advised them of the areas that needed to be corrected. And we also advised them whether the paint is intact or deteriorated and what friction areas need to be immediately corrected. But it seemed to be a pattern between window sills and baseboards. There were several options we needed to discuss with a client as well on letting them know that, hey, we can go in and the possibilities of every unit having the baseboard and window sills was extremely high since it was a pattern that we discovered on those first 30 units we were able to inspect. Was that inspection done at 0.5 or 1.0? At the 0.5, following the new regulations. And also, it was very important for the client to understand that anything that any reading that comes in at exactly 0.5, we give them the option to have a paint chip and send off to the labs with possibilities of it being a negative. Anything inconclusive, we advise to have it paint chipped. If it comes in under 0.5 with the lab looking at the paint chip, then they don't have lead base paint problem on that component. Carrie, in that case, what was the remediation? They did all the remediation on all 72 units. They replaced all the baseboards, replaced the windowsills as well, since there seemed to be the problematic areas in those apartments in that building. So they replaced the baseboards and the windowsills. Did they replace any did they replace anything else? They did, but there were different components in every apartment. Each apartment was different. The ones that were consistent were the window sills and the baseboards, but they did move forward with replacing the other components. So each apartment needed to have their own remediation done. So you did remediation on all the baseboard and the window sills because that seemed to be consistent across the board. But then there were individual situations and individual apartments, and you dealt with that on a a case-by-case basis? That is correct. Once all that's done, what happens next? After remediation is done, a clearance is done by a third-party company. They come in and they make sure that the problem has been resolved and they get a certificate of clearance. And with proper documentation, that's when the situation is resolved. Can they then file for that exemption? Then there comes the lead-free and the lead-safe part of things. So if it's lead-free, it means that there's no lead whatsoever, but it depends on what kind of remediation was done. But if the remediation included bringing the lead to an acceptable level, then they would just be considered lead safe? That is correct. Right. So lead safe, they would have to continue to monitor, but lead free, they would be exempt. They're done. That is correct. And with lead safe, it's super important to keep the documentation because having proper proper documentation for each apartment is key. If you're lead safe, every time one of those apartments turns over, you got to have another inspection for that apartment. Is that correct? That is correct. So, Lee, do you have anything to add to that? Bill, what I would like to add is a lot of property owners that 
did comply that tested their units at the 1.0 and got exemptions at the 1.0 believe and would like to believe that they're going to get exempted at 0.5. And unfortunately, what we're seeing, the 0.5 number is a really low number. It's literally testing the limitations of the XRF, the X-ray fluorescence instrumentation. And unfortunately, you know, units that were certified lead-free at the 1.0, we now retest that unit and do find a series, about 15%, I think was the statistics that we were seeing and the city was suggesting, of previous components that are now being determined to be between 0.5 and 1.0. So the case where Carrie had shared, you know, the landlord thought they were going to be exempt. It's a common thought. And, you know, unfortunately, when you cut a standard in half, the potential for that popping up obviously goes up. So in other cases, you know, we've seen owners say, oh, we did a total gut rehab, except they left the main column or they left the wall in this room. So, again, there are reasons, but that cutting the standard or the definition in half really makes it a little more challenging. And that's why we recommend doing this little, you know, three unit kind of peekaboo look-see inspection. Carrie, the one that you were talking about, was that a 0.5 or 1.0? 0.5. Oh, okay. So Lee, that one was a 0.5. So that, so the example that Carrie's giving, that wouldn't, they, they don't have any problems anymore, right? Because no, no, what Carrie had suggested was that they thought they were going to be a lead free. And we went and we tested the uh, units. And oh, because they had a previous because they had yeah. a previously tested at one zero. Correct. Oh, I get it. Okay, this wasn't a first. This wasn't their first rodeo. They'd been there, done that. Correct. Bill, many landlords in the city have. It's not their rodeo. So let's talk a little bit about the XRF, the lead paint analyzer, known as the X-ray fluorescence. Yep. All right. So that's, I guess, what XRF stands for. And, you know, I hear stories where this thing gets turned on and there's more lead outside than there is in the apartment. And if you had the windows open and the outside air comes in and now you're over 0.5 because of the outside air, not because there's a situation in the apartment, is, is that a fallacy or is that something that's actually happening? A little bit of confusion in what you said. The outside air doesn't put lead on the paint. But if you're talking about the five and the dust white clearance on floors, that absolutely is not a fallacy. It is absolutely a reality of the city. And there was actually a study done by a gentleman, a colleague of mine, Robert Politzer, who took a piece of glass, plain glass, wiped it down with Windex, put it in front of a window outside an apartment, let it sit there, took a dust wipe day one right after he cleaned it. And then a week later took wipes and it came back quite elevated. He went around the city and took wipes off of the top of crossing the walk signs. And I believe the average uh, across the walk sign had 800 micrograms per square foot of lead dust on it. So now we're talking about a city, you know, dust clearance level of 5, 40, and 100. The answer is, yeah, there is absolutely atmospheric lead in the city for a lot of reasons. And it's uh, 5 micrograms per square centimeter? If we're doing it on a dust wipe analysis, or are we staying with the XRFs? Yeah, so maybe you're confusing, Bill. So let me take a step back. I apologize. No, no, it's okay. I mean, that I'm, I'm only asking a question because 
there are two fives in the world right. today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. City. So there's 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 milligrams per square foot and there's milligrams per square centimeter, I guess. Right. If we're measuring paint with the XRF instrument, the current city definition of lead-based paint is 0.5 milligrams per centimeter squared. At the same time, the city also lowered their dust lead clearance standards. So if you're going for a a, a remediation or a clearance are required to take dust wipes in the city, which a lot of the lead laws require. The standards now are five micrograms per square foot or 40 micrograms on window sills per square foot and 100 in window troughs or wells. So we've got uh, micrograms on the dust and milligrams on the paint. The paint is square centimeters and the Dust is square feet. Don't ask me why, Bill. I thank have no you, idea. thank you for clarifying it's, that because uh, <laughs> I mean that's Im- that that's important. That's important, right? Because people are just seeing this one number and they're thinking that's what it is, and it really that's not what it is. It's all these things that you just said. Now, so the the XRF gives you a reading immediately when you're testing the paint within seconds or fractions of a second. Right. Okay. Say. Yeah. That's a, that's immediate enough. How do you test the dust wipe? So to determine what the dust lead levels are, one f- literally takes, you know, a sanitary or a prepackaged laboratory provided dust wipe, puts on non-powdered latex disposable gloves, templates out an area, and literally takes the wipe, puts it in a tube, labels up the tube in the chain of custody, and sends it to the laboratory requesting a lead dust wipe analysis. And what you're saying is that uh, your colleague did this kind of uh, independent test and found that areas outside of the apartment on this piece of glass, which started off clean. And then you said the crosswalk signs, those actually showed these elevated lead levels. Absolutely. Yes. How do we deal with this? Couldn't you be getting, so to speak, a false positive? You could absolutely be getting a false positive if the question is, is it attributed to my property? The false positive of is there lead in this wipe would not be a false positive. The false positive would be where is it coming from? Where is it emanating from? And I could give you even better examples than being concerned about the air. New York City's lead laws only regulates the interior of a property. But as I might have shared, I do a lot of or have historically quite a bit of subject expert litigation defense. And part of what I do based on depositions and requests of the insurance carriers or the attorneys, I'll go in the neighborhood or to the other areas that the child has frequented. And I will tell you the grand concourse, soup to nuts, loaded with lead paint. I will tell you all the columns from the ground that was, you know, the jungle gym, the monkey bars or home base as a kid are loaded with lead paint. Our subway platforms, uh, our subway entrances, I've shot many of them with my XRF. A lot of the old cast iron railings that we see throughout the city, many of it is on historical properties. And the yellow lead chromate paint that we see as the crossing paint. To this day, the Federal Department of Transportation still allows for an exemption for DOT paint. So whether it's the dog or the little kid over time, you know, not properly maintaining that painted product, I see sheets of paint coming off of the metal fabrication of the train system throughout the city. I think there are a lot of external sources that have nothing to do with the property ownership that could absolutely contribute to elevated dust lead levels within a particular unit.
Thank you for all that clarification. That helps us really understand what the whole process is, how the new levels from 1.0 to 0.5 plays into this and how, and I didn't realize this until you just explained it, there were two different sources. So one is the lead-based paint and there is the dust wipe. And if someone's dust wipe test positive and they also have a lead-based paint, they're going to have to deal with remediation or treatment. What are some of the options? I mean, it's obvious if they're changing the windowsill, they're taking out the old windowsill and putting in a new windowsill. If they're changing the baseboard, they're taking out the old baseboard and putting in new baseboard. I'm sure there's some protocol of how you do that. You just don't ask a contractor to come in and rip out the windowsill and put, a, put in another one because when you rip out the windowsill, I'm sure there's some risk to spread some of this lead around the apartment. So I'm sure there's a protocol on how that's done. So please tell me a little bit about that. And then in some of lo- larger areas, like a wall, what would you do there? Would you put up new drywall? Is there something you can paint it with? On the remediation side, again, the question is, what is the objective? Is the objective just to eliminate lead-based paint hazards and eliminate friction and impact surfaces and manage it and comply in place? Or is the objective to go for a total exemption? Let's go get that lead-based paint free. And we're actually going to remove and replace components and or chemically, mechanically, or physically strip them right down to their original substrate. Within the city's regulations, within HPD's requirements, there's a new requirement now through the Department of Buildings to be able to document whoever the trades are, that they have the proper training. Depending on the treatment, it's plasticizing, it's notifying, there's a relocation potentially of residents and occupants. There are cases where, and again, this gets very confusing, depending on the extent of what's being remediated or treated, less than two square feet, 100 square feet, and two or more windows per room. Those are each different, I'll call it thresholds of a higher level or the next level of certification who can do the work. At the end of the day, although abatement is different than, let's say, work practices, it obviously is a lot of covering personal's belongings, removing belongings you know, from the work area, plasticizing and containing the work area, doing a lot of HEPA vacuum washing and HEPA vacuuming after whatever work treatment is performed. And then obviously, as Carrie shared, you know, and the city requires is that third party EPA clearance test coming in at the back end to really validate that whatever work was done is not leaving this unit, this room, this space in a contaminated or hazardous situation. The treatment is somewhat predicated on what's the component and the objective of the property owner on a particular property. Every property has a little different thought process. Some, they're more aggressive to say, I want to get it totally lead free. And other ones, you know, some owners say, we're going to manage it in place. I don't want to put the money into this property. Oh, so they can actually decide whether they want to be lead free or lead safe. Absolutely. hundred percent. This is a pretty heavy discussion. As a matter of fact, I, I, I think it's heavier than any lead I've ever held. <laughs> wow. And we're just talking about New York City. I mean, you, you deal with other states as well. And I would imagine that it's not all the same everywhere. And far from the same. One would think, right, that a child who gets lead poisoned in New York or New Jersey or Connecticut or Oklahoma or South America, we're all humans. It's the same treatment and what have you. So, you know, on my own personal, why has it gotten so complicated when it's the same issue? But I guess that's, you know, politics and cities and government and 
the whole system. So it has, it, it has gotten very complicated, especially in New York City. It does appear that New York City's prior mayor wanted this, you know, lead free New York City. And they have definitely passed. And as you and I were discussing the other day, and they are getting ready to, you know, some more effective dates of some new components of the lead New York City uh, saga, you know, are going into effect. So, yeah, it's very complicated. Very, very complicated. Would you say that New York City is more complicated than some of the other states that you have experience with? I will tell you without any question, without any reservation or hesitation, New York City is unequivocally by far the most complicated. And how many other states do you deal with? And I know you don't deal with them directly, but you have strategic relationships in those states. A lot of states we are licensed and certified in, obviously, whether we work with our strategic partners or not, it's still our responsibility, our obligation to know the laws as we're guiding and helping our clients. And many of them have branched out, bought in multiple states. So even for an individual landlord, they now need to know multiple states. But New York City is by far the most challenging. We operate, I would say, pretty regularly in 35 states, plus our U.S. territories. And we even do some abroad stuff uh, globally. So I'm very confident in saying New York City has really made this quite challenging. Because this is a federal thing, it's every state. Like there's no state where they don't have a lead law. There are states that have not adopted their own lead law. And by default, then they, they play under the EPA's lead law. So it is a national program. It's national as far as the EPA is concerned. But if you have a local law, then that's the one that prevails. If it's more stringent, it prevails. But unfortunately, a lot of these laws have differences. So while you still got to comply with these pieces of this federal law, you don't have to comply with those pieces because those pieces are also required in the local law. So it gets a little choppy. Lee, the other day when you and I were preparing for the episode, I said to you, what about local law 39, which I believe was enacted in April of 2021. And it says that it becomes law October 18th, which hasn't happened yet. What is Local Law 39 all about, and how does it impact what we've been talking about up to this point? Local Law 39 and Local Law 40 really focus more towards the Department of Health regulations in New York City. And what Local Law 39 of 2021 does is it gives more DOH investigative authority. It mandates that DOH, as well as the owners, post notices 39 is all focused around an identified individual child with an elevated blood lead level. They do have an elevated blood lead level. And again, they go back to residing, right, up to 18 years of age. If DOH is notified a 17-year-old has an elevated blood lead level and they spend 10 hours a week in somebody's unit because they're a babysitter, Technically, they would fall into the bucket of residing in the unit that they're babysitting in. And because they're under 18 with an elevated blood load level, Local Law 39 would pretty much require the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene to go out and do a in environmental blood investigation or inspect the particular units. One of the things that they did do in this was, and it basically says the requirement to inspect the dwelling where such person resides, so the person they identified, and, and this is really where it gets kind of interesting, where a lead-based paint hazard is found in that unit, 
any other dwelling units in the same building in which a child under the age of one resides should be inspected. So obviously, if DOH comes out because uh, whether it be a five, four-year-old or a 16-year-old, 15-year-old, and they have an elevated blood lead level, and they see within that unit, there are what we'll call lead paint hazards, cracking, chipping, flaking, peeling, chalking, blistering of either tested lead paint and determined lead paint or paint that has not been tested and is presumed, if they see that, they now have the right to say to Mr. Property Owner, we want to go look at all other units in your building for lead hazards where a child under the age of one resides. And then it goes on in this as to what, you know, what these inspections from the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene will potentially consist of. And obviously, they're going to do a full XRF inspection of all surfaces within the unit including the friction impact and chewable surfaces. They're also talking about providing a free test kit to the resident to test for lead in their drinking water. It also gives Department of Health the authority to do lead in soil sampling, such as parks and playgrounds or other areas where there's bare soil that the child might have frequented. But what I did find interesting was they have an accept areas under the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation jurisdiction so they kind of carve them out in a nice way there. It talks about posting notices. Now, when the city comes out, they're going to post the notice in the common areas. It's going to put a requirement on the owners to put a copy of notices next to the elevators. If there are no elevators at the main egress or entrance coming in and out of the property, there's a mandate that if they do get, if the ownership does get hit with an abatement order, they have 60 days to correct this. So it really puts a lot of additional power into DOH as it relates to elevated blood levels. Part of this certainly throws, you know, as a property owner, nobody likes the words lead paint being put anywhere in their building. And under this local law 39, it now mandates that DOH basically puts it in if there's an EDL and it mandates that the ownership sprinkle that notification a little further throughout the building by elevators. It definitely tightens the noose a little bit on, you know, the lead-based paint issue in New York City, for sure. Carrie Lee, that was amazing. And as I said before, that discussion was heavier (laughs) than lead. And as our time together draws to a close, I'd like to share with everyone how they would get in touch with you. Lee, how, how can people get in touch with you? I can always be reached at Lou Environmental Services or info at louenvironmental.com. Or certainly my email is lwasserman at louenvironmental.com. And I'll put that in the show notes and Carrie. Kmunoz at louenvironmental.com or 908-477-6815. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. So nobody misspells it. Well, Realty Speak fans, as you know, I always like to ask a question at the end. If you woke up tomorrow and something in the lead laws world changed, what do you wish it would be, Lee? And I'm going to ask you to take it for both of you. Go ahead. I have a couple answers. If I really could click my heels and wake up, I wish they would put the definition of lead-based paint potentially back to the 1.0 just because of the confusion. However, I don't think they're going to do that. I think it's way too late for that. So if I could say, what would I like to see change to make this law more manageable? I think the city has to seriously look at giving property owners better access to the units 
It is a constant struggle for the ownership. And obviously, if they can't get in, we can't get in. And if we can't get in, how are we supposed to inspect the units by August of 25? And the other area that I would certainly like to say, if I could wake up and have a change, I don't think it's fair that the city only allows a contestation of an XRF measurement at only the 0.5. Historically, and the data supports that the XRF instruments are not perfect, they're in situ, although we do check their calibrations, they're not absolute. And when you have very low levels like 0.5, 0.6, that only New York City has built, these are not federal studied researched levels. The federal law allows us to contest any XRF measurement with a laboratory paint chip sample, as where the New York City lead laws are currently only allowing us to contest an inconclusive, or in the case of the two instruments that can be used in the city, the 0.5. And I think it's very unfair that I do believe there are a lot of 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 XRF measurements at these low levels that are not sincerely 0.5 milligrams per centimeter squared of lead because of the interferences that these instruments struggle with because of issues in the world of nuclear physics like Compton backscatter and what have you. And operator error even contributes to an erroneous measurement. And I think those two things would certainly make it more manageable for sure. Well, Lee, thank you very much. And Carrie, thank you very much. Hopefully, uh, the powers to be will take that feedback and do something with it to make this a much more manageable situation. But I think at this point, everyone that listens to this episode will have a much greater understanding. I know I have a much greater understanding of the lead laws in New York City. And thank you so much. That was amazing. Thank you both. Thanks, Bill. It was a true pleasure being on your show. Bill, I want to thank you as well. I really appreciate you having me on your show. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website, and there is an opt-in option at the top of the page. Or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app, like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. Spotify? Yep, Realty Speak is there as well. And please, help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, or how to properly plan for a sale, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B I. L L W E I D N E R dot com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.